The Old Testament reading this morning is a familiar one for most of us. It's uh, from the book of the prophet Micah in the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 6 and continuing through verse 8. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly or carefully with your God? Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The New Testament reading for this morning comes to us from 2 Corinthians in the 12th chapter beginning at verse 6 and continuing through verse 10. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then... I am strong. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. These difficult words written by Paul to the fellowship of the saints at Corinth were authored after the apostles' second visit with them, after he had begun to receive some concerning reports about the state of the church in that city. In this letter to them, he's attempting to encourage them to return once again to following the instructions and believing the gospel message, the one that they had previously received from him, to distance themselves from the rival and false teachings that had been spread by others 
since Paul was there in their presence. And here, in this 12th chapter of his letter, he's reminding them that the word he had brought them was a word of truth which extolled Jesus the Messiah and not some word which inflated the ego of the one who came bringing the good news. To make his point, he is relating to them the way he received the news he brought to them. He has just told them the startling manner in which he was made known of these mysteries. Some of them he can't even put in words. They are so astounding. And yet, through no merit of his own, he has experienced these things and he is unable to remain silent about them. He must tell what he can of the good news. And as he has done so, he has also undergone trials and troubles, which started when he received this very unsolicited yet unimaginably powerful life-altering and life-giving truth. This past week at the small church conference in the North Carolina hills, the keynote speaker there touched on a number of ministry topics over the course of the three messages that he delivered, and one of them had to do with human weakness and the fact that nobody, including clergy, were immune. Now, that wasn't so much of a revelation, I suppose, as it was a helpful reminder. But hearing Paul's words about it again got me to thinking about a number of related and honestly difficult truths. One of these I felt convicted to speak about this morning. Perhaps it will be for y'all less of a revelation and more of a reminder, but it isn't a message that I've heard many dare to speak, so it might be news to some of you. Despite what we first learned way back in elementary school, and that which has been reinforced ever since by the media, I don't believe that human beings have any rights at all. I know that goes against everything we've been taught by well-meaning and even not so well-meaning teachers, pundits, and others. Well, here's why I believe that holding the prevailing position is biblically unsubstantiated. As the psalmist so beautifully explains in the divine act of creation, God has called each and every one of us into being. We are not agents in that process. We are the result of it. Before we knew God, we were known by God. 
He is the one who ordained our being. In four beautiful verses of the 139th Psalm, this divine act is explained to us. For it was you, God, the psalmist said, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them yet existed. So we have no part in this process. We had no vote. We had no veto. Here's the message that I want you to hear this morning. Our life is not our own. We were made by the authority of the will of God, and we were not entitled to this life, nor anything in it. We are recipients and benefactors of a purely benevolent act from our Heavenly Father. Not even life itself is a right of humans. It is a gift of God. How does such an interpretation then change the way one views the world and lives faithfully in it? And to address that important question, I think we do well to draw from our church's reformed confessional tradition. Specifically, the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks the eternally existential question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> the answer there supplied reminds us of the argument that I've been making. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Five centuries ago, the church understood clearly the relationship between the Creator and the work of His hands. The same understanding, I believe, is evident in the writing of the Apostle Paul. Well, recently, though, I think we've moved more toward adopting a a romanticized notion of human abilities and potentials. One that can lead us astray into thinking more highly of ourselves as a species or as a people or even as a nation than we ought. Some say that the founding documents of this country were written by men who were simply dictating the words of God that the documents were divinely breathed revelation. Were that the case, though, they would be elevated to a pedestal heretofore reserved for the canon of Scripture. And therefore, I cannot ascribe to that conviction. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that our national heritage includes some powerfully moving and inspirational documents which 
laid the foundation for an amazing republic. But I recognize that they were written by minds that were thoroughly shaped by the philosophical understandings of the Enlightenment and not by the ineffable mind of God. They may have been inspired by a deistic understanding, which many of the founding fathers had in common. Several of them were clergymen. But in the end, these are solid human documents. In the Declaration of Independence, the authors wrote, we declare these truths to be self-evident that all men, well, all men that look like us, well, all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, it's easy for me to say, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, redrafted to happiness. Powerfully noble language, indeed, but with all due respect, I have to disagree. God, who is our creator, has not endowed us with the right to live, nor with the right to be free, nor with a right to pursue happiness. No. On the contrary, we have no right to life. Further, we have no right to freedom in this life. In fact, that is precisely the lie that Satan has told the children of God from the very beginning as the serpent whispered to Eve that she should exercise her freedom of will to do that which she thought was right by eating that forbidden fruit, the one that was so pleasing to behold. The most basic nature of sin is denying that we were made in the image of God to glorify, worship, and serve Him. Just as Jesus came to serve and not be served, we weren't made to enjoy freedom and autonomy, but to submit to being the happy servants of the Most High. And we have no right to pursue happiness as we are, in good Reformed theological language, totally depraved. There is not one part of us that is untouched by the sickness of sin, not mind, not body, not spirit, not will, on our own, we are incapable of judging properly what is right and what is wrong. Apart from God, we don't know what happiness truly is. Too often the things we would do to bring ourselves happiness are the very things that Scripture tells us to avoid for our own good. Therefore, I argue, we are neither endowed with nor are we entitled to any rights, inalienable or otherwise. Well, then, if that's the case, aren't we a sorry lot? And where does that leave us? Well, I'll tell you where I think it leaves us. Right there, at the foot of the cross. And that is, I think, the sort of thing Paul was getting at as he's describing his own weakness here in this letter to the Corinthians, if we strip away this sense of entitlement, any notion of self-importance, what we get then is an utter reliance upon God to be our strength and shield. 
And as the apostle has experienced, the shield and protection of God doesn't always extend to the protection of the body. Had it, well, then he wouldn't have had to endure all these trials and sufferings that he describes. But the shield of God does protect him and all who call on the name of the Lord from an even worse fate. For though as God-breathed, spirit-animated creatures, we have no inherent rights as followers of Jesus, we have been granted many privileges. In the prologue to the fourth gospel, we hear a twofold reminder of our frailty and a powerful assurance of God's benevolence and grace. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. In our weakness, our utter helplessness, God shows forth his sovereign power. That's the truth that Paul knows, precisely the lesson he's teaching to the Corinthians here. If anyone were in a position to boast, well, then it would have been Paul. But his boasting in himself ended along with his days as a Pharisee. He's come to understand that this life can be extremely joyful and it can also be very, very hard. As believers in and followers of Jesus, we shouldn't expect an exemption from the reality of trials. On the contrary, in his experience, since joining the way of Christ, the trials have been more numerous and painful than ever before. Neither he nor we have a right to expect a buy, but the joy of life under the new covenant is an unmatched, unmerited, and eternal blessing. So, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not entitled to anything from God, but for all that He so graciously continues to give us, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.